Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. We're podcasting a Bible study on Wednesday nights for those who cannot be with us in person at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ. Now, that's not just the people in the Omaha area. Uh, We know that even in Omaha, there are people who cannot be with us because of scheduling problems, disabilities of one kind or another, a number of different reasons. But we know that there are people across the country and literally around the world who want to be in God's Word. They want to learn more from God's Word, but obviously because of where they live, they cannot be with us in person. But you can be with us through these podcast Bible studies. And we're thankful to be able to teach God's Word through the vast medium of the internet and by means of these podcasts. And we're thankful that people want to be in God's word. We're thankful that you're there and that we're here with you to help you study further and dig deeper and learn more. And as you're in God's word, your faith grows because faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. Now, we also encourage you to Share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, other technological means. You may help somebody grow in their faith. You may help somebody come closer to God. You may help somebody get to heaven ultimately. And what a great blessing that will be for them and for you. Also, tell everybody to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com. Click on the podcast button and sign up for our podcasting. It's free. It always will be free. And when somebody signs up for a podcasting, they will automatically receive to their smartphone or computer or whatever smart device they choose a Wednesday night Bible class, a Sunday morning Bible class, all of our sermons, a daily radio program Monday through Friday that we call Search the Scriptures, and a short Bible study, only about 13 or 14 minutes, but every day, seven days a week, keeping us in God's Word and thereby, again, helping us to stay strong in our faith. We call that today's Bible class. Now, all of that will automatically go to their smart device, and it will automatically be free. So tell everybody you can. Take advantage of it yourself as well. We're going to get back into our study from the Gospel account according to John. We're in chapter 12, and this, again, is a rich study. It really takes Jesus's ministry upon this earth from a different perspective, generally speaking, than the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're pretty parallel. This one kind of stands alone as far as the time period that it covers and the focus that it gives. Now, there, there are some parallelisms, but not nearly as much as, as, as is the case with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, we're going to begin chapter 12, and we have talked about the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead by Jesus, and we've talked about the relationship of, that Jesus had with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. They were personal friends, apparently, and certainly Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had great deep faith in Jesus, and we saw that when both, Mar- uh, both Mary and Martha told Jesus basically after their brother had died physically, uh, if you had been here, he, he would have lived. And, but then Jesus raised him from the dead. And we also saw that, that when Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus had been laid following his physical death, and he had been dead for four days, that 
the shortest verse in the, in the entire New Testament, we read, Jesus wept. And so again, we, we see that he had a very special, very close personal relationship with these three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, in chapter 12, it says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead. Now, he had been dead, past tense, but he was no longer dead whom he had raised from the dead. And so there's no question as to which Lazarus, because you know some people might say, well, that was probably a different Lazarus. There are probably a whole bunch of guys in, the, in, in that part of the world at that time named Lazarus. And so this could have been any one of them. And certainly, you know, we can't believe that Jesus really raised somebody from the dead. Well, yeah, he really raised not only Lazarus, but he raised the son of the widow of Nain also in another text. And who knows how many others he might have raised from the dead while he walked upon this earth, because John, at the end of this particular gospel account, when you come to the last chapter and the last few verses, John says, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, I suppose the world could not contain all the volumes or all the books. Well, that was obviously purposeful hyperbole, the you know purposeful exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. But we understand the principle behind that, and and so John says there are a whole lot of other things that Jesus did. Uh, undoubtedly, a lot of other miracles and wonders and signs. But this was, there's no question as to which Lazarus, nobody could get around and say, well, that's probably not that, that same Lazarus. No, this was the one he is identified as, as whom he had raised from the dead. There, were made, uh, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of co- very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And so here, Judas, he, he keeps the bag as kind of a technical uh, you know, description of his being the one among the 12 apostles who took care of the funds, kind of the treasurer, if, you'd think, if you could think of him that way. And so he takes exception with, with what he was char- characterizing as a, as a you know, costly, unnecessary use of something that could have been sold uh, for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. But verse 6 goes on and says, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And so here was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he was entrusted with the treasury, the funds that that would be you know gathered for the apostles' sustenance, their food and Taken, being taken care of, and so on, and that of Jesus as well, uh, and and so he protests. You know, why was this costly oil, 
used in this way to wipe his, you know, to, to anoint his feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. Then, well, this could have been sold for a bunch of money and given to the poor, but that was just subterfuge, so to speak. That was just, you know, a bunch of baloney because he wasn't really concerned about the poor, but he was concerned about the money that could have been raised by selling it, and then he would have probably stolen at least part of it. Well, Jesus said, let her alone. She, she has kept this for the day of my burial. But for the poor, you have with you always, but me, you do not have always. And sometimes we need to recognize the greater need or the greater purpose. And we might say, well, we could do this or we could do that or we could do something else with something or with a moment in time even, with an opportunity. But is that the most worthy thing that we could do at that time? We probably often in our lives are faced with situations that that present us with several choices. Well, which one is the best? And so Jesus says, "Don't, don't criticize her. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you. You're going to always have poor out there but you can't take care of all of them all the time. But me, you do not have always. He was going to, he knew he was going to go to the cross soon and he was going to ultimately ascend back to heaven. And so the time that, that Mary would have to do what she did in love for Jesus and respect to him and honor of him, uh, she would not have much more opportunity to do something like that. Well, we come to verse nine and this is interesting. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that is, that Jesus was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Well, so you have many among the Jewish population, we might call them the common folk to a great extent, And they've heard that Jesus raised this man Lazarus from the dead. So they wanted to come and see Jesus, hear Jesus teach, speak. But they also wanted to come and see Lazarus. They wanted to see firsthand. So it was not just something that was, you know, a wild, a wild kind of gossipy kind of passing on of some communication that really wasn't true. Oh, yeah, there's this guy, Lazarus. You know, he died physically. He was dead four days in the tomb, and this man, Jesus, raised him from the dead. Well, they wanted to see for themselves. Lazarus was alive. He was walking on two feet. And so they they came to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Now, the effect of that, verse 11, was that many people, many of the Jews, were becoming followers of Jesus. They were believing in Jesus. Now, verse 10 says, though, but the chief priests, these Jewish authorities, they plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Now, they plotted to murder Lazarus. And why? Because they did not want any more Jews to become followers of Jesus, to believe in Jesus, having seen this formerly dead man now raised from the dead, that man being Lazarus. Now, again, when you have to resort to evil, to wickedness, to supposedly uphold godliness or faith in God, you need to drop down on your knees, go back to the drawing board, start praying for God's wisdom and guidance, for his forgiveness, for sure. 
because that is absolutely contrary to what God would have you to do. Now, we need to stand up against unrighteousness, but to kill somebody, to stop people from believing in Jesus, to murder this man whom Jesus had raised from the dead because people were recognizing that this truly was a miracle unlike any miracle, basically, and, and they were becoming believers in Jesus, which should have happened, but because you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to kill the man whom he raised from the dead. See, that, that's just pure evil, pure, pure evil, and you need to change your mindset. Now, verse 12, we go on. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Many had come to believe in Jesus as the Savior, as God the Son. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this is, this is prophecy. And here, once again, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from, uh, you know, about, about him coming and riding upon a, a donkey. Now, you can also pick up on this in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 7. In verse 15, again, here's the prophecy going all the way back to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. In verse 16, his disciples did not understand these words at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You know, the apostles were there with Jesus on an ongoing basis. They walked with him. They ate with him. They, I'm sure they worked with him at times. But he taught them a great deal. But even so, they still did not understand everything that he was teaching them. They did not understand all of the ins and outs of his being the Messiah, the one prophesied in Old Testament scripture to come as the Savior of mankind. In fact, not very long after this, in, in one of the longest immediate contexts of Scripture, John chapters 14, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's going to be the night of Jesus' betrayal. And, and in that particular setting, he tells the apostles that he's going to leave them soon. They still don't understand what he's talking about. But he says, but I'm going to pray to the Father that he sends the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring to your remembrance all things that I have told you. All of us, you know, when the Holy Spirit would come upon the apostles, Acts chapter 2, then they would understand fully, basically. They would remember. They would understand not only, they would not only remember some of the things Jesus told them, but they would understand the meanings and the applications of those things. So here, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And again, so this is prophecy going all the way back to Zechariah chapter 9. In verse 17, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. Now, again, Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead in secret. 
there was, there was a group of people there. And so those bore witness. Yep, we were there. We saw him. We knew Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four days. He was already wrapped in burial linen, and, and he was in that tomb. It was sealed. And Jesus called him forth. We saw him come out from that tomb. Verse 18, for this reason, the people who met him, because they heard what he had done, uh, uh, heard that he had done this sign, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, somewhere along the line, an intelligent person, a person that, you know, is able to use logical reasoning needs to come to the, to the recognition of the truth of a matter. Now, they may have had a hard time believing it, but when the proof is continually put forward before them, they need to come to the point where they say, yeah, hey, obviously that's the truth. Obviously that's the truth. And so that should be the ultimate consequence and determination. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Again, the very next chapter, chapter 13, begins a long, immediate context of Scripture focusing on the final day, the night before Jesus would be on the cross. And so Jesus says here, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, so Jesus is is using illustrative language here. He's making a comparison from an agricultural perspective that people of that day and that part of the world should have been able to understand, you know, you take a grain of wheat, a seed, and so you plant that in the ground. Now, what is going to happen to that seed is it's going to die to its present identity as a seed, and the plant, whether that's corn or wheat or whatever, But the plant that God designed to grow from that seed is going to come forth. But the seed's gone. The the seed has, has transformed into that produce, that plant. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, he came as the Savior. But as the Savior, he had to go to that cross and die. And then he would come forth from that tomb that he would be buried in, as he had raised Lazarus from that from the dead, Jesus would be raised by God the Father from that tomb. And that would prove beyond any doubt that he is the Savior prophesied in Old Testament scriptures, that he is the Messiah, that he is God the Son, the Son of God, 
He is all that he claimed to be during his public ministry upon this earth. But he had to go to that cross. Now, anybody could have gone to the cross and died claiming to be the Savior, claiming to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. But the resurrection proved it, proved Jesus to be telling the truth. And that would draw far more people to follow him for millennia, basically, than those who had believed on him just during the time that he was upon this earth. So verse 27, we move on. Jesus still speaking. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And again, those standing around him, I think probably undoubtedly, very few, if anyone, understood what he was prophesying there. He, he, was, he was saying in, in these words, I'm going to die soon on that cross. And it would be very, very soon. And so he said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Shall I call upon my father to save me from this hour? No, it was for this purpose that I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. And of course, God would be glorified through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 28, we move on. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to us. Boy, so God speaks in response to what Jesus says. Father, glorify your name. I came for, to the, for, for, the, for this purpose. I came to this hour. I came to die on that cross. And God would be glorified through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me but for your sake. Now this now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's not talking about God as being the ruler of this world in, in this particular statement. He's talking about the devil, Satan himself. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus continues to draw people to him almost 2,000 years after his death burial, and resurrection from that tomb. People still come to him. People still believe in him. People of other religious beliefs leave those beliefs and come to Jesus still today. And I trust it will be that way until he comes again on that final day of judgment. In verse 33, this he said, saying, by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. When you have the light, believe in the light 
that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And of course, Jesus is identified as the light of the world. In verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And you might wonder again, how in the world could this be? He continues to prove himself. He continues to demonstrate the truthfulness of his identity as the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son. He does that, and, and Peter brings this out in Acts chapter 2. He talks about to, the, to that multitude of Jewish men gathered at Pentecost, thousands of them. He says, <clears throat> Jesus performed these signs and wonders and miracles in your presence, and you still crucified him. Some people simply will not believe the truth of a matter. That the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so we're going back to another prophecy, Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Some people simply refuse to believe, even when the truth is obviously forcefully, emphatically staring them square in the face. We pick up with verse 42. We close the chapter. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And here's another reality. Some people will not live the faithful, dedicated, committed Christian life because it would mean giving up some kind of relationship in their life or some kind of position of prestige. So they don't, con- they don't become Christians. And that's true today on a wide-scale basis. These, even among the, Phara- even among the Pharisees, uh, some of them, I'm sorry, even among the rulers, Some of them believed in Jesus, but because of his enemies, because of his detractors among the Pharisees, they they would not confess him because they they did not want to lose their position in in the synagogue and their membership in the synagogue. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, he's saying, you believe... When you believe in me, you believe in God. And one way we can understand that particular statement by our Lord is that God the Father and God the Son are God. And you throw in there, or you include God the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God. God in three persons. 
and he who sees me sees him who sent me. Remember, Jesus told one of his apostles, and we'll, we'll look at this in John chapter 14. He said, you know, I've been with you so long, and you don't, you don't know me? You don't see me, who I really am? And he is identifying himself with God in that particular text of Scripture. In verse 46, I have come as a light into the world. Now there he identifies himself as the light of the world again. That whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of sin. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He came to die on that cross so that we could be saved through him paying the price for the guilt of our sins on that cross. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. In other words, he says, I've come teaching you that I am the Savior, that I am the Son of God. You don't believe in me? You refuse to follow me? I've told you the truth and the truth of what I've told you. Those very words will be the basis of your judgment on that final day of judgment. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that this command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus came bringing the message of salvation, the teaching of forgiveness, redemption, salvation, and eternal life. We call that in a nutshell kind of identity, the gospel, the gospel of Christ. He brought that message of salvation and eternal life from the throne room in heaven to this earth for all of humanity. That's what he came for. He went to the cross to fulfill his mission as the Savior. And he says, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. He came teaching the Word of God, the very Word of God. We'll pick up with chapter 13 and enter that longest, well, one of the longest of all the immediate contexts of Scripture in the entire New Testament, from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. And that's the night of his betrayal, the night before he would be nailed to that cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. That was the motivation for you to send your son, to this world with the message of salvation and eternal life and to die on that cross as our Savior so that we could be forgiven and have salvation and eternal life with you in heaven. Help us to live the life you want us to live as Christians and help us to help others see the way to come to you through Jesus and to turn their lives around. Please be merciful and gracious with us, Father. Please forgive us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.